I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottomline Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Paula Spencer-Scott. She's the author of Surviving Alzheimer's, Practical Tips and Soul-Saving Wisdom for Caregivers, and an expert in dementia and family care because it's not just about the patients. Paula has written a dozen books on health and family, including some co-authored with physicians at Harvard, UCLA, and Duke. She runs the website survivingalz.com and has five close family members who have had or have dementia. You can learn more about Paula and her work at paulaspencerscott.com. So welcome, Paula. Thank you for talking to us today about this very challenging topic. I'm thrilled to be here. So in your book, Surviving Alzheimer's, you talk about that there are four different personality types of Alzheimer's patients and that they each have to be handled differently and you need to be kind of aware of it. So, you know, to me, there's, there's a million different personalities. So how is it that a million, or I guess an inf infinite number of personalities can kind of break down into just four types to manage and keep your eye on? Right. Well, personality is um, incredibly individual, as you point out. Um, and um, there is um, there's so much of being who we are that it shapes our personalities with one another, but it's impacting caregiving is sometimes overlooked uh, and especially in, in dementia caregiving. Um, the, the, the people are, are individuals, but the, uh, and their essence often remains the same, but psychiatrists will tell you that there are certain sort of buckets of personality traits or types. So there's sort of these four buckets and having an awareness of which type of personality that you're dealing with can help inform your caregiving. It's like a, just another important piece of the puzzle to be aware of that helps you respond in ways that minimize stress and improve the quality of life for everyone. So once somebody goes into a personality type of dementia or you know into one of these buckets do they stay in that bucket or will they move between buckets over time it, it, it they can change over time some people stay the same some people um, shift it's a little hard to predict and it also depends on what type of dementia that you're dealing with how so um, well, the, um, the frontotemporal dementias, for example, um, are really linked with more um, kind of paranoia, uh, delusions, um, Lewy body dementia, um, hallucinations are a common feature of that. And they tend to fall more into that sort of paranoid, angry, frightened bucket um, of dementia. But they're staying in that bucket. It's not like depending on what kind of a dementia you have, it'll shift more or will that happen as well? Um, well, it could shift over time. Often um, people tend to early on be more um, depressed um, and, and anxious while they still have awareness of, you know, you have your good days and your bad days, you're aware something's not right. And that can either um, sort of shift into a more um, kind of a calm what's kind of sometimes called a pleasant dementia, um, or somebody can, can continue to slide into more of a, a depressed or anxious state. Now, and you said, actually, I think, uh, let's see, I totally lost track of what I was going to ask you. Oh, I know. Um, the, there isn't necessarily a connection between the type of personality that someone has and their pre-dementia personality. That just because someone was pleasant through life doesn't mean they're going to be pleasant during dementia. Yes, that is really the, the startling 
important thing for people to be aware of. And I've experienced um, in my own family members a, a variety of these um, different situations. So my grandmother was a very sunny, cheerful person. She turned into a really depressed personality type. Um, I had um, a mother-in-law who was kind of very uh, an uptight person who became um, very easygoing and had that sort of pleasant dementia. My father was easygoing all through life, and he stayed that way all through his his dementia. Um, I had an easygoing father-in-law who developed a frontotemporal dementia, the delusions, the hallucinations, and became a, a very different paranoid personality. Um, I never would have you know, guessed who would be which at the outset of this. Wow. And how hard is it when for the caregiver to, to remember when you're going and dealing with the patient that whatever behavior they're presenting, it's not about you? Because it would be really easy. You know, you've always had a loving, you know, easy, relaxed relationship with your father. And suddenly you have this, you know, angry, I'll, I'll call it an angry beast on your hands, right? That you never dealt with that before. But it's not, that's not the person that it was. It is the hardest thing in the world to remember. <laughs> I mean, I, I live this, I, I write about it, I talk about it. And then when I had it in my own living room, um, I, I just lost my patience all the time. And I, my husband and I would just tell each other, we, we had this, it's like, it's the dementia. We had to like articulate it and just remember that that was causing the behaviors that we were seeing and, and dealing with, because you get so frustrated with some of these situations that it's it's super hard to remember. So, kind of, and lucky you had your husband. You and your husband had each other to kind of remind yourself of this. Um, so critical. All right, let's talk about what those patterns are. So the first one actually, relatively lovely. It's kind of a pleasant pattern of behavior. Yeah, it's even it's actually known as as um, as quote unquote pleasant dementia, um, where um, the person tends to be. Um, almost docile, agreeable, um, happy. They express gratitude. Um, a, a surprising twist, as I mentioned, is that many people who had difficult personalities in life, you know, whether it was being demanding or opinionated, strong-willed, they become this more agreeable person. And um, some people say it's almost like having a, a personality transplant. Um, and what's happening is that you know, there's a deterioration in the in the frontal lobes. Um, there's the parts of the brain that are um, governing um, logic and, and analysis are affected. So there's this kind of letting go and a shift to living in the moment. So is there anything that a caregiver should do about that besides just be appreciative and enjoy the ride? Yeah, well, a lot of caregivers are actually feel a little bit sad and guilty. It's kind of a bittersweet thing because they're relieved if they have this difficult personality who's now so, sort of so docile that you feel a little, um, you kind of feel bad because it's, they're, they're much easier. Um, in general, with this personality type, though, um, they, they just do really well um, with a lot of routine and support, you know, reassurance and affection, um, keeping them stimulated, um, in, in physical and social ways, you know, so that they're kind of involved in things. You're not doing everything for them, um, allows them to feel like they have, you know, their, their life goes on. They have their meaning, they're able to contribute and that helps to kind of keep them from, um, falling into a, a depressed state. Is this also an opportunity for loved ones who might've had troubled relationships in the past 
to actually reconnect with the patient um, and resolve anything from the past. Not that you want to have heavy conversations, but to suddenly, I'll call it, you know, re-meet them and maybe have a chance to talk about, you know, find out stories. Like I've, I've had, you know, people where you never knew their history and then suddenly when they're looking at the end of life, suddenly you're hearing about, you know, stories from when they grew up on the farm or, you know, when they were dating their spouse or whatever. Absolutely. It's like forget what's lost and just enrich and enjoy what's there and what they, they have there to, to give you and the times that you can, can spend together. A lot of families really do um, kind of cherish the, it's like the, you know, talk about a silver lining of a bad situation because it's um, an opportunity for those kind of moments. So of all the Alzheimer's patients, what percentage of them generally end up with pleasant dementia? I don't know the exact numbers, but it's um, it's actually a, a fairly large percentage. People who are in, in, in especially when they're in a, a sort of a secure, stable, um, loving care situation. Nice. All right. So now let's talk about, um, I'll call it your third stage, which is apathy. Because pleasant, you know, how do you know when pleasantness falls into or slips into apathetic? Uh, apathy is... Um, it's kind of when it's almost the absence of, uh, of the capacity for, for joy or anxiety. So it looks a lot like depression, but it goes beyond that. It, the person is just flat, unmotivated, uninterested, um, unemotional. Um, it, at first, a lot of people fall into this because they're, um, they're using up a lot of their mental energy to, to keep up and to stay focused, right? It's hard to, to focus on three things at once. So I'm just focusing on, on this and they kind of develop this sort of laser, uh, putting all my brain energies into just functioning, getting through the day. And they tend to, uh, almost, you know, lose their relationships with the other people around them. It's very troubling to, to family members. And eventually they, they tune out almost everything. So it's funny, and, you actually liken this, you talked about it as a continuation from depression. And I saw it as the pleasant person simply getting bland, I'll call it. No, I would say that the, the, the pleasant person is more likely, uh, I, I'm not a psychiatrist, so this right. is what I'm, I'm hearing from psychiatrists, but that the, the pleasant dementia, a person is more likely to become maybe depressed or anxious if the care situation is making them feel insecure in, in some ways. Um, apathy is, is sort of, um, it's a little bit like depression on steroids, but but different in that it's just a complete flatness. And some people fall into this and just stay this way throughout the whole dementia experience. And you wrote something in your book that I thought was really interesting, besides a lot of interesting things in your book, but a point in particular that um, apathy is very common with people who were once very powerful in their lives. Yes, yes, I've been been told that. um, Because it's a it, it starts out with, you you know, they're, they're trying to control, they're trying to hold on for so long. And then it's almost just a giving up. Yeah, the thing I've seen with powerful people is, you know, the former masters of the universe, is that they honestly believe that they're masters of the universe. And when that power is taken away, they don't like they just don't know what to do. Mm. They got they mm. just kind of get stuck and shut down, because I don't know how to operate in any other way. Yeah. All right, let's take a break. We're going to come back and talk about depressed patterns and paranoid, angry, frightened patterns. So thank you, Paula Spencer Scott. Back in a minute. I'm talking to Paula Spencer Scott, one of the foremost experts on education and support for caregivers. 
those loving family members who share in the care and oversight of our aging population, including the growing number of people with Alzheimer's. Caregiving is intensely complicated from both a human and a financial perspective. At Bottom Line, we're your team of top experts in all aspects of your life, including caregiving, general health care, finances, estate planning, and more. We pride ourselves on providing guidance and support to individuals and families by helping them lead more informed and vibrant lives through our actionable, double fact-checked advice. Subscribe to Bottom Line Personal today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. All right, we're back and we're talking to Paula Spencer Scott about the four personality patterns of Alzheimer's patients because it's important for the caregiver to know what they're dealing with. You treat different people in different ways and it gives you strategies that helps you understand the ways that you can work with the patient if you know what they're dealing with. We've, had, we've talked about, Paul, we've talked about pleasant patterns, we've talked about apathetic patterns. Let's talk now about depressed or anxious patterns. So who gets those and at what stage? Well, anyone can get them. Um, often it's people who were predisposed to um, depression or anxiety before they develop dementia. There's sort of a, um, a, a relationship between um, depression and, and dementia. It's like a chicken and the egg thing. Um, but also um, the common shift can happen early on and when the person still has insight um, about what's happening to them and, and that realization can um, sort of cause somebody to, to become much more depressed or anxious. Um, and it also can result if they feel, um, insecure or, um, uh, not well cared for. Uh, and I'm not saying that if someone develops this, it's because they're not well cared for, but all of these are sort of reasons that can feed into this kind of personality pattern. So and, what and are- it, Mm-hmm. Oh, so what are the symptoms? What, what are the signs that I'm looking out for to know that somebody's slipped into a depression or anxious um, profile, especially if they'd been previously depressed or anxious? Yeah, it, the way that it manifests in dementia often um, are sort of repetitive symptoms um, like behaviors like pacing, you know, shadowing, following somebody around, hoarding, um, agitation. You know, kind of sometimes, you know, skin picking, um, doing a lot of these sort of anxious um, uh, movements, um, having difficulties sleeping, um, eating in, in, in you know, patterns that are unusual for the person. Um, again, it's got a, a sort of a complicated relationship between um, dementia and um, depression. And, and there's questions about which is a risk factor leading to the other. Oh, interesting. And how about medication? So presumably if somebody's had chronic depression or, or anxiety, they've been on medication. Does, do you change medications? Do you add to medications on this? Do you, um, yeah, well, medication, it's a conversation to have with the person's doctor to really figure out what's in their best interest, what's going on in terms of dealing with these symptoms as they first appear. Medications really are uh, considered a last resort and not a first resort, um, because they, 
you know, they just can have so many side effects mm -hmm. um, and that it's much easier to look for um, environmental kind of situational ways that you can deal with it. So, um, you know, minimizing traumatic changes are really useful with, with someone who's um, showing this kind of a, a pattern, um, not having, you know, rotating aids or um, lots of um, moving from one place to another, um, or just in everyday life, kind of setting up win-win environments that minimize the challenges for them so they don't have to make so many choices about food or clothing or, you know, trying to find ways to help them that are unobtrusive so that life just becomes a little bit smoother. You've just smoothed the path a little more. So it seems like actually rather than depressed and anxious, it really is focusing more on the anxiety aspect of it, that keeping the calmness, setting up the routines, not having surprises, um, I presume traveling less with them, that they like to be at home and in their places and, and knowing their spaces and things like that. Yeah, it's it's figuring out what works for for that individual, but in general, those are the kinds of things that they will respond to um, much better. If somebody's been going to any kind of um, talk therapy or psychotherapy, is that do, do you continue with that? Yeah, I think everything in dementia happens on a spectrum. Um, and so it, I wouldn't say just because you suddenly have diagnosis, you know, diagnosis X negates everything else that the person is doing in, in their life. And, and if you can kind of take a, a holistic look at what's going on with the person's doctor, that's um, always the best way to go. So a lot of things with anxiety or depression becomes an issue of control also, where people feel out of the control so that they'll get a little more anxious or depressed. Should you try to include the patient in the process, like setting up the routines? How do you want your closet to be? How, you know, the temptation is when you have a patient to treat them like a patient versus right. to include them in some of those decisions. Right. Yeah, that's really useful because it, it helps the person. Uh, and again, it depends on what individual you're dealing with. Um, but if they're really feeling a, a loss of control and dementia involves so many losses, right, of, of driving and of being able to, to go here and there, um, of, of skills like reading, um, finding ways that they can have that, that control in, in reasonable ways can be very helpful for some people. Other people just don't want to have to make those kinds of decisions at all. And you kind of have to, there's a lot of trial and error involved in seeing what works. And again, back to the caregivers when we're talking about in another segment where the caregivers have to also, I'll call it, give themselves space for not getting frustrated, trying different things. They may or may not work, but working with that patient and, you know, giving yourself space to go, okay, well, I'm trying the best I can. Right. Absolutely. All right, let's talk about type number four, the paranoid, angry, frightened personality. This may be the most important personality to just be aware that you're dealing with, and you, you tend to know it if you're dealing with it. Once you've you know, had a, a delusion or two um, in your living room, then you, you know you're dealing with something different. But it's also really easy, as I said before, to forget that because the frustrations are so great, and the person is acting in these sort of baffling scary, even out of character kinds of ways. Um, and, um, again, this is, um, really connected to, um, frontal temporal kind of dementias that are literally changing the way that the person is thinking, um, things don't make sense to them. And so their mind kind of fills in the gap or, or makes things up, you know, they get these, these false beliefs about things 
and um, and it can turn your lives sort of upside down, right? So that you know, an, a lost item is suddenly a stolen item. Um, an unfamiliar face, right, is is having an affair with your wife or someone else. So, what's um, the strategy for responding to those accusations? Because if you deny it, it's just going to inflame them. Yeah, you you have to avoid. Um, correcting them and try to stay neutral. And it requires the, the patience of a, of a saint. Um, often asking questions um, can be kind of helpful way to while you're biding time trying to, to go along with it. So you're not really asking like, why, why are you thinking that they don't know that, but all those other W questions, you know, are, are really useful. Well, when, when did that happen? You know, what did they take? What did it look like? So that you're not, you're, you're not, um, arguing with them that that's not true and you're not necessarily, you know, I mean, you're kind of going along with it, but you're just allowing them to kind of present more information. Um, and sometimes the, the person will just, they feel heard like they, Oh, you're taking me seriously. I answer the questions. And then they're more open to being distracted with some kind of diversion, um, that you can kind of turn the situation, move into a new room, introduce something they really like, like, you know, it's time. How about some ice cream? Um, it's funny. I was just going to ask you about distracting, kind of like, you know, what do you do with the two-year-old that's having a tantrum? That to, you know, do, do the distraction method of, well, after the accusation, then maybe talk about something else or is it lunchtime or whatever? Exactly. As long as you can sort of stay calm and then it almost became a game for me, right? You just find ways that you can flip it in a new direction. You kind of acknowledge it and then um, and then turn it around. Some people, you know, really respond to, to humor, um, or just reassurance. They just want to feel safe and feel heard. Um, but it's, um, it requires a lot of, of creativity and a lot of, again, reminding yourself that it's not about you. It's, it's the dementia. Will these episodes come on suddenly? Will someone suddenly become paranoid, angry, frightened, or will it evolve and get worse over time? Um, I think both are true so that you can have an episode that just comes out of the blue there. Um, my father-in-law, for example, was not in that state all the time, but something would happen that would trigger it, whether he woke up from a nap and was dreaming something or something else had happened, but it would just, you know, appear. Um, but also, um, I think it's also true that these kinds of episodes do tend to increase uh, over time. And you talk about the fact that the antipsychotic medications, which are tempting to give to these patients, are not effective. They can be effective, but the medical community agrees that they're not a best first line of defense. Um, they can have a lot of serious side effects. They, you know, can lead to to falls, and then you're dealing with somebody who's got a, a broken hip and they're diluted at the same right. time. Um, and, and so always, if you can find these sort of behavioral ways to, um, resolve the situation, it's a, it's a much, um, better way to go for everybody involved. And at what point is it too dangerous to have them at home? I would say when the person is violent or aggressive. So uh, oftentimes with, um, with, paranoia and, and, and that angry personality, um, they present a physical danger to, to you or to other people. Um, and that tends to be a, a, a deal breaker moment for a lot of people. I also think that if the, if your if the person's behavior is, is impacting your sleep. So a lot of times people get, you know, days and nights mixed up and they, they have, um, a lot of, 
um, uh, frightened activities at, at night. You know, that, that's the point that you also want to t- really talk to a doctor because if it's starting to impact your sleep, that's um, so not healthy for you <laughs> and that that's a legitimate um, point at which to kind of reach out for more help. Well, and if someone displays violence once, it would be tempting to go, oh, well, you know, I'll forgive it this time and hopefully that, you know, they're usually not like this and let's see what happens. Or is once enough because it will definitely happen again? Yeah, if it can, if it happens once, it, it can happen again. The people do the same thing about uh, wandering and the person getting lost. Oh, they, they just were lost. They got confused for a moment. But all the statistics show if a person has, has wandered away and gotten lost once, it'll happen again. And the same with, with violent incidents. There's a lot in the news now about guns um, and people with dementia. Um, there's just certain certain things that you can't be too careful about. I was just going to say, I mean, so it raises a really important point. Hide your knives, hide your guns, although anything can be weaponized, I guess. Right. Um, I, I mean, it's seldom going to just come out of the blue. I yes. mean, you, you tend to know what you, kind of a, a person that you're, you're dealing with. But, but once you see it, yeah, you want to take some kind of action. Right. But again, they are frightened. They are overwhelmed. They're not responding as, an, I'll call it, a normal brain would respond. Who do you call? Am I calling 911 or am I calling a dementia hotline? Who am I calling at that moment in time? Uh, I would really start, well, in the heat of a moment, um, you don't want to call 911 if you can avoid it because they're not going to recognize the person's dementia in most cases. And um, you kind of start going down a shoot that you might not want to be down. Um, I would talk to the person's doctor. This is, you know, after it happens. Um, there are um, hotlines that you can talk to just to get advice on how to deal with a, a situation um, in, in the heat of the moment. All right. But also, it seems like if you're dealing with a patient that does have this type of issue, you need to do a lot of homework and you need to be prepared for any kind of outcome or any kind of episode to come up. And I'll call it no, pre- prepare for your back doors. Right. Right. Because it's right. not, you know, pleasant person's pleasant, an apathetic person may be shutting down, but an angry, paranoid person can surprise you at any moment in time. And it's important to remember that they're, they're acting this way out of fright, confusion, fear. Um, this, there's not a, they have, they haven't morphed into a, a, you know, an evil danger person. There's there's a very complicated brain there that's hurting. Um, and so the more you can learn about ways you can do a lot of things to prevent these situations from, from coming on, um, by the way that you've set up the, the care situation and, and that can help you as well. All right. Paula Spencer Scott, paulaspencerscott.com. Great advice. Caregivers. You, you, there's an array of behaviors that your patients can have. You need to know what they are and how they might behave so that you can best help them out. Thank you so much.